AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So Matt, I hear you have a story about Corp.com going up for sale? Yeah, this one's pretty interesting, I think. So Krebs on Security, who I think a lot of us follow, uh, has this article about the, the domain Corp.com, right? Which, you know, on the face of it, seems like it's a pretty great domain to own if you have it. Um, the guy who owns it is trying to sell it currently for $1.7 million. And that's all well and good, uh, but there's more to it than just the fact that there's a domain for sale. So corp.com has sort of a special meaning to certain versions of Windows and certain deployments of Active Directory. So back in the day, Microsoft used to recommend to people that if you want to set this up, your Active Directory, so you might want to use like a, you know, you need to put down some sort of domain at the end, so everything underneath that domain is all sort of grouped together. And they'd recommend if you got nothing better, use corp. Okay, that seems reasonable but there's something special in the way that Windows Active Directory deployments will start to do DNS. So when you're inside of the network, you know, if you, you say server01, you know, if you do like slash slash server name and, and it'll yeah. you know, connect to that server by name. Yep, it just finds it. It just finds it, right? So it's actually trying to stick things on the end and it'll do, you know, it'll try and resolve the entire domain name for you based on just that one part. So there's some magic going on in the background how Windows likes to do this DNS they call it DNS devolution or domain devolution, mm -hmm. where it's sort of like starting at a set of rules of, we'll try this one, then we'll try this one, then we'll try this one. And eventually we hope to find the domain you're actually looking for based on what we think we know about the network, which is fine, again, if you're just doing it within your own network. Mm -hmm. Now, if you take a laptop that was joined to a domain like this that was built way back in the day when Microsoft recommended Corp as the default, and you take it to Starbucks, and this is actually a scenario they talk about in the article, and you say, okay, I'm going to try and mount all my shares, and server01 is there. Server01's uh, kit, that's not working. Server01.corp, uh, that's not working either. We're going to try server01.corp.com. Okay. Seems like a reasonable thing, except <laughs> corp.com exists on the larger internet, and that's the domain. So the guy who's owned this for years and years has been seeing all this traffic coming from Windows machines that were configured to be part of an AD deployment like that. Yeah, I can only imagine what, what's come across. Exactly, exactly. So there's all sorts of like authentication attempts and file share connection attempts. And so the guy who owns this actually worked with a researcher. So over an eight month period, they saw 375,000 different requests wow. from various boxes over the internet, all trying to connect to what they think is their internal corporate network. Yeah. Uh, and they also briefly tried to, you know, they would set up like a service that would listen for the actual authentication requests. And within 15 minutes, they said, we can't. Be like a full-time job replying to these people. It, well, that's the thing. <laughs> like, if you own corp.com, you can be this, the direction that all this traffic flows in for all these boxes that are, you know, out on the real, the, the real internet, which is why it's valuable for attackers, why mm -hmm. they don't really want it to fall into the hands of criminals or nation-state actors who would love to sit there and watch credentials and sensitive information just roll in. So what do we do about it? I mean, uh, Microsoft has tried to buy corp.com in the past from the guy who owns it for $20,000. He's asking $1.7 I mean, <laughs> I'm hoping they come to some sort of resolution because I would much rather see Microsoft own that domain than yeah, so I'm curious, is the guy trying to sell it just to Microsoft or is he willing to sell it to anybody else? Because, you know, if the wrong person gets it, it could be a bad thing. 
I think, I don't think he would sell it to anybody. I think he, because the owner is sort of aware of the problem and has gone to lengths with these other folks who did the security testing to show that the problem exists, I don't think he would sell it to just anybody. I mm -hmm. think he's trying to do the right thing here. But he's also got what in any other world would be a very valuable domain to have. I mean, corp.com, I mean, there's a reason that we have, well, actually, no, that's another good point to bring up. Um, things like .corp, .local, .lan, yep. these are all the same kind of problem, right? Because if you've decided to make your, your domain LAN or corp or local or internal, um, those would also technically be things that might get leaked out to the outside in the same thing. However, um, I think it was ICANN. Yeah, ICANN has actually reserved a bunch of those already. Okay. You can't get you can't get dot local. You can't get dot corp, dot home, any of that kind of stuff. So this guy just might have gotten to it before ICANN did at the time. I think home dot com, mail dot com, you know, local dot com are all still valuable, um, but the ones that the TLD versions are locked. You mm -hmm. cannot get a hold of those. The the interesting thing is that you know people will use domain names internally in a specific way, with the assumption that you know no one's ever going to use these names outside. And then over time, use cases change, and now we're stuck with this domain that's kind of a, a hot potato, and it's worth money. He probably spent a good amount of money on it himself. I can understand yeah, the just, motivation. Yeah, just even, I think I saw that at times he was reaching out to companies early on to try to say, hey, you, you have a, a problem here that you need to address. I shouldn't be getting You're, what I'm getting. Yes, this is um, true. But I guess with that volume, you just can't keep up with it. You know, this kind of reminds me of the same idea when a company lets uh, a, a, an important domain expire. So, for example, a domain where uh, they're using to send updates, and now the expires, uh, the wrong person buys it, and now they can push any terrible thing back to the users. And it just reminds me of that kind of case. And the, I mean, you, we kind of extend a certain level of trust to DNS. I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of why we have things like DNSSEC these days, so that that level of sort of casual trust gets bumped up a little bit more, so you can kind of prove who you're talking to. Right. Um, but you know, plain old vanilla DNS. If someone's controls the DNS server and says this is what your site resolves to, then it's the same problem, right? You've got this, you've got control over somebody else's infrastructure and all the trust that comes with it, all the assumptions that come with saying, well, you know, you know. Ken.com now resolves to this IP address that never resolved to before, and who knows where, where your traffic's going. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the big question is, what can we actually do about this? Now, you know, regardless of what happens with this purchase, if you set up Active Directory at some point in the past and you're stuck with one of these sort of problems, it's not trivial to change it. Like, you can't just go in a configuration file and edit it and right. and like reboot one thing. You kind of have to take your AD down yeah. for a while. It, it seems like there were quite a few steps you might have to step through to, to update. And this. you kind of have to make sure before you even attempted that, when it comes back up, every place that you were using your old domain has been fixed. Mm -hmm. And you're going to find places where you, you didn't fix it. I promise you that. So people were kind of hesitant to, to deal with that kind of prolonged downtime and debugging that goes with that. But there's not a great way around that either. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think all you can do is say, if you're still doing this, if you're still using Corp or any of the things that are kind of like that, that are not, if, you're, if your AD isn't under your own domains that you actually own on the open internet, 
it's a good idea to change them mm -hmm. and make some plan for the future that you should eventually get off of this. Um, and I don't know. I feel like it's, it's a tough situation to be in, but it's one that you have to kind of deal with sooner rather than later, especially if this is, these kind of purchases are happening. Yeah. Well, in a way, it, it's good that this is coming to light that he's looking to sell it because maybe it does spur a few companies or people to actually go through those updates then. Yeah. They, ha they would have to be a real trusted party, though. That's the thing. They'd have to be somebody because even if somebody else buys it, right, they're still going to be receiving this traffic. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be some long tail of devices that don't get updated, that don't get managed, don't get corrected, mm -hmm. um, and the traffic's going to end up there. You know, it actually reminds me of a, a, a couple, there's a couple talks that I've, I've seen at, at Black Hat or DEF CON that are very similar to this sort of idea. There was one on domain squatting. Okay. Um, where like, so in, in DNS, and I'm, I'm going on a tangent here, but in DNS, if you flip a single bit in the name that you're asking them the question, um, that, you know, it'll, you get a completely different question and a completely different answer. Right. But enough bit errors occur within the DNS infrastructure that you'll get stuff like that happening where someone will ask for like google.com and maybe like the, the one of the bits in, in the second letter gets changed and it's still a valid domain so the DNS request goes through and the traffic ends up at some totally different server. Some random other website or some other server, yeah. Yeah, so the guy had done a survey on, you know, how much traffic can I get with just single bit flips off of like the Alexa top 10 or top 100 sites and it was significant. It's kind of an interesting thing that like even when you try your hardest to prevent this sort of stuff from happening, physics at the <laughs> DNS level like gets in the way. Yeah, it, it just finds a way. Yeah, it's weird. There's just random, you know, error bit flips. So what do you guys think? Anything else you want to say about this one? Yeah, this makes me wonder if, like, I don't know if it already exists or, or if there is a, an opening for somebody to create a nonprofit where, you know, you will get the funds in to try to solve this kind of problems, right? Like. For me, for you, like 1.7 million sounds like a lot, but if it means for the better of everybody, can a nonprofit come in, get some donations, and then buy this domain off the internet to prevent, you know, further damage? I guess, but what do you, you, you want to pay one, you know, pretend, pretend you're trying to pitch this to the board of whatever nonprofit you're on. We'd like to spend $1.7 million for a domain we're not going to actually use for anything, right? It's all preventative. It's preventative. Right. It's still a hard sell, I think. Un un unless your whole mission of your nonprofit is to do just that, to go find these domains or things that, mm -hmm. that can pose these kinds of issues, right. you know, then I, then I think you're right, Matt. It becomes really difficult. How do you sell that? Well, the other and that might be why this person was going to Microsoft. Mm -hmm. I would also think that, you know, in hindsight, one of the best things you could have done was taking this domain out of play earlier. Like if you are ICANN, mm -hmm. right? If you're doing things like, you know, dot corp will never be something you can register, dot local will never be something you can register. Corp.com, if you have that same power, just say no, this is not a valid domain ever, shall never be a valid domain, except that this guy already bought it and he's looking to get some sort of return on his investment. Mm -hmm. So that motivation, and I feel like it's gonna be another hard sell to try and convince somebody who wants 1.7 million to hand it over to a, a third party responsible for internet infrastructure uh, for no money. Right. So, yeah. guess we'll have to keep an eye on how this plays out. Yeah. Using domain names that could possibly resolve outside of the network um, that you don't have control over 
is a security issue, like it or not. It's important to take the time to update your AD or make sure it's updated, or if it's not, to lay out the plan for when will you have it updated and how you can get there. So Jonathan, some of us went to school for several years, spent a lot of our money, and now you're telling me I need to go back to school and learn some more stuff? What is this? Yeah, so I tend to go around and uh, look at uh, things like MIT OpenCourseWare, and in one of my searches, I ran into this course from MIT uh, called uh, The Missing Semester for Computer Science Students, and uh, let me to try to see what they were talking about, and, uh, and it made me wonder, okay, are, are they right? So in this story, uh, sorry, in this, uh, in this posting of this class, it's a set of videos, uh, they're talking about how in some universities, MIT in this case they're referring to, you know, you get into very advanced courses right away, right? Like uh, creating your own kernel and operating systems and uh, advanced networking. But there are certain things that are left to the students to just learn on their own. Uh, so when you look at this list of the missing core of the missing semester, there are some items that I kind of agree with, right? I, I didn't personally go to undergrad for computer science, but even in my in, in my graduate degree, uh, things like you know, figuring out how to use a terminal, something that you end up using a lot, uh, something like um, uh, you know, using Git and version control. Uh, just learning how to debug, uh, just simple things like uh, for cybersecurity, like what entropy man means. So you you just wondering, you know, okay, maybe this is something that uh, not just MIT, but maybe many schools just assume, okay, let let's the students let, let them let them figure it out. And I'm curious what your your thoughts are on this. Yeah, you know, that's that's the thing. I mean. I'll be honest, I went to an engineering school, and I think one of the things that I came out of engineering school with is a better understanding that even with formal education, there's a lot of things that your professors are not going to be teaching you, mm -hmm. uh, and that yeah. it's kind of on you to be a self-starter. Now, maybe that was my own personal experience. Maybe my professors weren't up to <laughs> the same quality as everybody else's, um, but I, I felt like learning to teach myself was a big part of it. Yeah. However, if I'd had a checklist like this, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at some of these categories here. Um, the command line would have been great. Version control would have been wonderful. Um, there's a bullet there for security and cryptography. Now, I went to classes for that, but I do know that a lot of the folks who went for plain old CS probably had like a footnote about it. They weren't taught in any real depth about it. They wanted to create people who could write effective code that did the functions it was designed to do and security might not have been a requirement. Or, so, or, or at or the was forefront it, of Right, of would have been thinking. an afterthought. Right. As opposed, you know, get it working and then make it secure, not design it so that right. when it works, it is secure. When you're in college or universities, a lot of the work you do is independent, uh, but you're still doing work with teams as well, so it's, it's surprising that you don't necessarily see the version control covered. I would have loved to have a bunch of these things. I mean, I had to learn Vim years later. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that, you know, that was one of those things that like you sit there and for a little while you bang your head against it and it's frustrating, uh, but then- Then all of a sudden you're- You're, you're just, just like, you're doing muscle memory and you're like, I've just saved and quit out of Vim and I didn't realize I, it, it works now, great, you know. It, it's cool once you've got it working, but until that moment, it is frustrating. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was first starting, I, I, I used to just 
try to, the first thing I would do was install something like Nano or Emacs and like completely ignore VI. And then you start doing, you know, bigger system administration work and you realize that, you know, those few seconds of installing something, you just take too long. Sometimes you don't even need to, right? You just need to change like one file. So it, you kind of force yourself to have to learn how to use Vim and VI. I mean, it would have been nice to have it been taught in school and it sounds like somewhere like MIT is not even teaching it at the very basic undergrad level. So some, you know, people might just be doing the same thing I'm doing. They go into their uh, regular development environment and they go install the tools that they're familiar with, but they don't try to use tools that are just built in and that will save them a lot of time in the future when they're trying to do other things. Uh, I'm hoping that other schools might be trying to get on, on top of teaching this, but if MIT is not doing it, uh, you know, if they're presumed to be one of the best, then who knows what others are missing in their curriculum. I mean, it would have been nice to have it been taught in school, and it sounds like somewhere like MIT is not even teaching it at the very basic undergrad level. So some, you know, people might just be doing the same thing I'm doing. They go into their uh, regular development environment and they go install the tools that they're familiar with but they don't try to use tools that are just built in and that will save them a lot of time in the future when they're trying to do other things. Uh, I'm hoping that other schools might be trying to get on, on top of teaching this but if MIT is not doing it, uh, you know, if they're presumed to be one of the best, then who knows what others are missing in their curriculum. Right. You know, something as simple as just learning how to use the terminal will go a long way. Trying to teach him how to do small automation work and how to just have some ways to get to shortcuts or just the basic tools in a, in a Linux terminal. That would be something that for every student, it might be helpful to just have the basic knowledge of. I think I learned, I learned C and C++ on a Windows machine in Visual Studio. Yeah, I and did I, too. I didn't really have to learn the console for that, but as soon as I fell into a Linux environment, like if I wanted to do any work in the, the assigned computer lab where sometimes I had to submit stuff there, yeah. that's when like, that's when everything. I had to learn. Like, yeah. They throw you in the deep end. Um, Plus you had to know all the Linux commands too to go with it. Right, that's very true. Yeah. This makes me wonder what cybersecurity curriculums are teaching. Are there this, you know, what seems basic, what, what you assume a student should just be learning on their own, uh, are we leaving some students out with gaps? Are they graduating with gaps that maybe the, the faculty thinks that they should just learn on their own, but the students never got to, they were just, you know, learning workarounds. And then when we get to the point of that they're trying to get employed, now they have this missing knowledge, right? Like this missing quote unquote semester, like the article said, that they need to now catch up on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you could apply that to even a lot of the, of the items we see here. Um, you, you think about when someone comes out of school or maybe from even another industry and they come to work in, uh, it doesn't even have to be cybersecurity in, in like a software yeah, development yeah, yeah. field. There's that onboarding time where they might know all the technology and all the, the development kits and the languages, but the specific tools, they then spend time and the company is essentially, you know, saying, okay, you get your onboarding time and then you get ramped up and now you're, you're being fully, fully productive. That's almost then a way that as the, if the company 
says we can shorten that lead time if these tools and maybe you have a few one or two week courses on these in the mm -hmm. at the university level. You know, I, I, I like that from a perspective of, of getting people spun up and prepared for a job. Mm -hmm. But personally, I'm interested in it because I I think I understand a lot of these things already. And I've I've gone back in the past and like reread an old textbook or like taking a look at a beginner version of something mm -hmm. and if there was a topic that it just wasn't explained to me at the, the right way at the right time and I never understood it and I give a, somebody yeah. gives me like a simple version of it, I go yeah yeah that oh, would make sense makes so much sense right and I, I might have like spent like a week trying to understand it in school and, yeah. and missed that question on the test but like you get another perspective on it and it just deepens your understanding so I think I'm gonna take a look at this yeah I, I think I will too yeah, I was looking around and I looked at the the video about Git and I actually learned a few new things. So I was uh, glad to look at it and I'm hoping that others can go in and learn and uh, get something out of it. It's generally good too to go back and revisit the stuff you think you know. Like maybe once in a while a refresher course on something you think is fundamental might give you new ideas, might show you some aspect of it that you just thought you understood correctly and then you revisit it and you say, wow, that, that fills a gap. That, that makes something plain and obvious that should have been obvious the first time I learned it, but for whatever reason, just didn't click. So Ken, uh, here you are bringing us a story about juice jacking. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there, there were some warnings that were put out recently suggesting that, uh, you know, I think we've all been in the predicament of we're out somewhere in public, maybe a park, out in the city, out at an airport, uh, and all of a sudden our battery on our device is, is running low and you get that, that anxiety of I, I, need, I need to charge it, right? And maybe you don't have a, a portable charger with you or a wall outlet isn't available so you plug into uh, a, a base station that someone provided to let you plug in and charge your phone or your, your tablet. Uh, and what the warnings are coming out here are saying are not to use those because there might be either malware that's put into whatever backend is powering the station itself or even within the USB cables. And so what they were, what they were showing in here was uh, they actually took a, a homemade charging station out to a, a park or a local area and when people came up and were charging it, they were then able to say, oh, this is what you're doing on your phone. Now they had a, it looked like, uh, either screenshots or video capture of the, the phone. So if you're uh, charging at, uh, at the park in this case, and you go on to a website to buy something and you put in your credit card number, now this actor all of a sudden has your credit card information and you know, you're out of luck. Yeah. Um, so I was lucky enough to be on a mailing list where someone was debating this with some other security professionals um, recently. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised to see that people were saying, this is nonsense. This is not worth warning people about because so far, all the examples of this have been demos or research or you know proofs yeah. of concept. Mm -hmm. And so far, no actual criminals have been observed or caught doing this to any real devices in the wild. Yeah, yeah, and, and when I read this, it almost seemed a little bit like an awareness campaign, that you're mm -hmm. trying to bring awareness to this could potentially become an issue. 
Juice jacking has actually been around as a term, I think since 2011. Mm -hmm. um, I think DEFCON, it was first uh, conceptually shown at, or might have been black. I think I might have seen, because somebody had built a charging tower. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was back in the day when the, the iPhones still had the, the wide connectors, yeah. right? Yeah. And then you, know, you could plug in an iPhone at that, and I think at that point, the iPhone would actually mount as a drive if you had it connected to a computer. Right. So like back then, it was a real thing. Like It was a real threat because there was nothing that the phone would do to protect itself. It would just say, okay, I'm connected to a computer. Mm -hmm. I am now a hard drive. Feel free to take files off of me. Yeah, I'm just curious because as far as, far as I understand, most modern phones and devices, when you plug them in, uh, they, they default to this charge-only mode, at least my phones have. And without coupling with another vulnerability, I, I just don't see what's causing... Uh, you know the issue, right? Like, like how are they getting to these phones that are, you know, getting I guess tricked to plug in to places? So, is it that they have found a way to make sure that it, it gets switched off the charge only mode? I'm not sure. And we had some some of the same questions as well when we watched the the demo video right. that was on this on this website. Yep. Um, I think you went and checked it out to see if you could find. Like we know there are, there are systems that we interact with where if you plug in a phone, it might be able to mirror it to a second screen, right. which would explain what we saw in the video, right? Yeah, and I haven't found uh, one yet, uh, but my understanding was it's always, that, like you said, Jonathan, was just, it's going to ask you, are you want charge only mode or do you want to do something else with it? And unless you yeah. make the, the visible effort to go past the default of charge only, uh, I don't. I don't know if that necessarily presents a problem. And mm -hmm. Apple and Android have, since this originally came out in 2011, put out updates to do things like that. To say uh, we're going to default the charge only. We won't mount it as a hard drive. Um, or I think in in Android they disable being able to access certain certain tool sets. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the other things to mention is, if you purely go and plug your phone in. Regardless, you know, if there's some other um, zero day that we're not aware of, some sort of vulnerability that hasn't been made public, fine. I understand that that is a possibility, although it's a slim one. But if you simply plug your phone in and it is still locked, modern smartphones will defend it. You know, it'll just it'll just charge, and without okay. user interaction of some kind, for the most part. And I'm I'm reserving this because <laughs> I got something else to say. For the most part, you should be fine. However. Today we found an article. Someone had found an interesting article, an interesting way of manipulating Android phones in particular, and I think it might still require you to have the phone unlocked. Right. But you could send certain things over USB directly to the phone's baseband, mm -hmm. which is very interesting. Yeah. And for those uninitiated, the baseband is basically the chip that interacts with the cellular network. Yeah, it's like the little modem on your phone. Right, because your your phone is is. All computers are more than one computer. I guess it's a short way of saying it, but your phone is a processor, and it's got a, you know something dedicated probably for the camera and something dedicated for the cellular connection and the Wi-Fi card. And they're all different chips, but the baseband is the one that talks to the cell network. And this, this someone had found a way to connect. You know, when you plug your phone in over USB, to talk directly to the baseband and do certain things that it should not have been able yeah. to do. But even that, it seemed like it was restricted to older. Uh, to the AT, well, older devices, and the AT command set, I think, is the things that it was able to do. So that's from way back in the days of, of modems, you, you would send commands to your modem using AT plus in a specific command, and 
modern bass bands, I guess, still use AT commands. Yeah. The, like, the haze modem set, mm -hmm. I think it's called. You know, the more we talk about this, the more I realize that you, you still need something else, right? It's not just about plugging your phone to get charged. It's about finding a vulnerability. Like, you know, yes, if there's a problem with the baseline that lets you do something to the phone, bypassing the charging only uh, protections, then that is where we should be focusing on. When I typically hear about a real, real vulnerability, something that is actually dangerous, you find plenty of people on Twitter who are able to go out or reproduce it. Mm -hmm. There's gonna be a Metasploit module for it. There's yeah. gonna be live demos. There's gonna be people on YouTube talking about exactly how it's done, not how to defend against it, mm -hmm. but how it is done. And that I have not seen. That, that would, for me, make me feel like this was a real threat. Like if right. someone could show me the, the Python code or the, the assembly or, or whatever it is and, and, and soup to nuts, demo this attack in 2020, I would believe them. Yeah, yeah. to me it comes off almost a little bit more as a, as a cautionary tale. Yeah. Not so much uh, like you've been, both been saying, it's, it's more so trying to tell us with that extra vulnerability, this could be a problem. Uh, we'd recommend maybe you continue to use if you have your portable charger or your wall outlet over, over say this, but as of yet, it seems like the, the charging stations, are, unless it's something someone's wheeling around in, a, in the park, uh, mm -hmm. maybe still safe to use. You know, but to be fair, if I was a portable battery company, I would definitely be promoting this research so that, you know, it will get some more sales for my portable batteries. <laughs> That's true. Like if, if you wanted to sell batteries, if you wanted to sell those little USB condom devices, yeah, yeah you'd, you'd want people to know about the threat of juice jacking, but um, it's fair. All right, Ken, you're in for a treat. You get to see the internet weather being made. All right. Yeah. I know we're just going to jump right into it. So this is the top 10 most probe ports for this last week. Um, this is the number of probes, not the number of sources. So keep that in mind as we go. So, I mean, the top four is not really a surprise if you've been watching the show for a while. Port 23 TCP is Telnet, still a problem. Port 445 is SMB, which is, you know, Windows shares and stuff like that. Prob still looking for it. Still looking for it. Still probably a lot of want to cry infected boxes out there. Um, 1433 is Microsoft SQL Server. 80ICMP is Ping. Mm -hmm. um, and in fifth place, we have a new-ish new contender, which we've actually seen on the show before. 8291 TCP has jumped up 19 slots, yeah. which is significant, very significant. So we'll go into that one in a second. Okay. 22 TCP is SSH, which has always been you know, in the top 10 or 20. Uh, 3283 we'll also go into. That one's kind of interesting. You're looking uh, forward to that. Yeah. 8545, I believe, is Ethereum GF server. Um, that one's been around for a while. It seems that apparently if you have this port open um, to the internet, people can scan past it and pull out some details about crypto wallets for uh, Ethereum. Okay. Um, like stealing money. Yeah. Uh, 3389, I think, is remote desktop protocol. Mm -hmm. And 8728 is also new on the list. That's jumped up 39 spots. Wow. So big move. Big movers this week, yeah. Uh, this is the most sources probing. And you'll notice that some of these have changed significantly as well. Um, 8291, 8728 make it to this list as well. So yeah. not only is it a lot of scanning, it's a lot of new sources scanning. Uh, so 445, 22, 23, we've talked about 80 is plain old web stuff. 
8080 is an alternate web port. Sometimes you'll see it used for proxies as well. 81 is another web port. I, I tend to see it more with IoT devices. Mm -hmm. 80 is, is Ping, and 1433 is Microsoft SQL. So the big question is, what are these new, these new players on the list, right? So 8291 is Microtik Winbox. It's a service that's kind of specific to Microtik routers and other networking devices made by Microtik. Uh, this is just the last 15 days. If we go back any further, there's, there's some scanning on it, but not to this scale. Um, most of these sources are in v Vietnam and Indonesia. Okay. I tend to think this is some part of a botnet recruitment effort. You, typically when we see a, a lot of sudden new scanning, it's because someone has a sudden new interest in some vulnerability. Um, it's not always that they're scanning for the particular port. That's not always their target. So they may pick a port that is indicative mm -hmm. of a particular vendor. Something so like, that, that might give away what I'm looking at. Right, so if I don't really care, if I'm, my, my end goal is to brute force Telnet passwords, mm -hmm. right? But I want to save some time, I won't try a list of 100 or 1,000 passwords. I'll say 8291 is a Microtik box. I know what the password is for Microtik. I'll go scan for that in port, and as soon as I find a box that responds, yep. I'll pivot to SSH, I'll pivot, and I'll try the password there, and I'll get in. So that's sometimes the tactic that we see. Uh, 8728 is a Microtik API port. Mm -hmm. And if you take a look at those, those hills and valleys, you will notice how similar they are. And I swear I didn't copy and paste that. You sure? I am sure. <laughs> because it is basically the same scanning population as 8291. Those same hosts in Vietnam and Indonesia are doing this. So, and I, I, when I was putting my slides together, I went back and forth. I was like, I, I'm is sure right? I didn't Did copy. I have the right? Exactly. It, it was so close. So. So anyway, again, 15 days, um, but we have seen people scanning for these Microtik boxes before. Um, I think there are some known vulnerabilities, but they also have common ports open. Mm -hmm. So I, I tend to think it's a pivot to find the device and then jump immediately to the brute yeah, force. Instead of looking at the noise of SSH, right. look for this. And that way, if, if someone is watching, like they'll, you'll scan for the high port, and then you'll jump in and you'll try a working password immediately instead of having to sit there and brute force against that service. Right. So If you can get in on one or two attempts instead of getting kicked out after five or three, yeah. it's much well, better for you. Exactly. So 3283 UDP, Apple Remote Management Service, or ARMS. Um, I actually found a good article from NetScout about this. Um, seems that some people had been using it last year or the year before. Uh, for DDoS amplification. Mm -hmm. So pretty much any UDP service, you'll get a reflective effect right. for DDoS. So you can send a, a packet to any UDP service, fake the source address, and the responses will go to whatever faked source address you have. So you can send a whole bunch of traffic to this third-party UDP port. They'll respond back to your target, and you'll yep. sort of mask The target will be overwhelmed. Right. right. Um, sometimes you get an amplification as well out of that. If you send a small request and the response is bigger, you've just you know, amplified your attack by some factor. Um, again, if, if your point is to just drive traffic to a site, um, that's one way of doing it. So there's a, a handful of US and Russian sources and some very well-known VPS providers who are scanning for this. And that's only really started up in the last uh, couple of days or so. Wow. So yeah, that's one to watch. I mean, it's been written about before, but I don't think I've seen that much traffic destined for this port before. Um, this was one that I thought was kind of interesting. It sort of blew up out of nowhere. It doesn't make it to the top you know, 10 or even 20 in terms right. of targets. Um, but out of nowhere, um, this port 1800, no, so this port 18082 TCP, which as far as I can tell is related to the Viper antivirus suite, but okay. I couldn't conclusively prove that was the target. Mm -hmm. um, 
this is a 15 day view and uh, you can see that there was almost nothing. You can see a tiny blip back on maybe the 4th or 5th of, of February, which might have been somebody testing out, you know, the scanning that they're yeah, trying to does, do before they go nuts. Does this work? Yeah, does this work? Sometimes you'll see that you'll see a little hump of traffic a couple days before the actual uh, mm -hmm. scanning goes off. But you can see that went from nothing up to, um, yeah. A mil, lot. Tens of, went tens from of I'm doing this manually to yep. here's something automated. And from what we can see, this is four sources in South Korea. Only Someone's four. really checking this one out. So yeah. I'd love to know if there's a new vulnerability here that just hasn't been reported yet, but this is as much as I know about this port at this point. Um, I also wanted to go back to a port that I covered the last time I was on the show, 37215 TCP. Um, you can see that spike uh, around uh, the 11th of January was just about when I was on the show last. Mm -hmm. And I commented on it because it was such a, a massive upswing in traffic. Uh, this, <clears throat> this Huawei HG532 service port, I think we've seen it on the show before. In fact, I went back uh, 365 days on my own and did this, this sort of tail down that we see at the bottom. That's actually the end of a larger spike okay. that we had seen. So it may just be that this is... Um, An occasional thing. <clears throat> it, it almost follows maybe it, a pattern. You would like think this. so, but the, the peak, uh, the, the, the high point from that, that curve is nowhere near as high as the one we okay. have today. So usually they're looking for a remote code execution bug in this particular mm -hmm. Huawei device. Um, and a lot of these sources are US, Netherlands. Um, so it's... Uh, Another quiet day on the internet, I guess. <laughs> the views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.